Well, for those of you on Facebook Live, thanks for bearing with me while I start over again and do another start to this week's episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Uh, my guest is Nicole Daher, and Nic- I met Nicole at uh, in Vegas at the IFA uh, award ceremony where uh, I'm going to have her talk about the award that she won, but that's the International Foundation of Advancements in Healthcare, and she works with kids on the autism spectrum. And we are going to dive deep into autism, understanding it, learning the differences between what was Asperger's and the difference between that and autism, and what happened to Asperger's, but also learning how to connect with kids who struggle, have, and are working with, and families who are working with autism. And thanks to Rob Lohman, uh, a wonderful, wonderful man in the industry of mental health and recovery. There was a movie called Sunrise, A Miracle of Love that I watched when I was in junior high, and that was like a billion years ago. And that movie was about a child who had autism, nonverbal, could not connect or communicate with his mother none of the doctors could to get through and all this child would do was sit there and spin plates and it wasn't until the mother sat down and did the same thing with the child spun plates that the child actually made connection and parents as you know it's always connection before correction it's alliance before compliance and you have to know when you're working with kids on the spectrum they have their own alphabet you cannot get them to do things your way You have to figure out how to heal them in their language, in their way. Nicole's going to help us understand that. Thank you for joining us on Beyond Risk and Back. Thanks for those of you on Facebook Live who bore with us through the false start and are now on the show up and running. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, and I'm flattered to be here. Well, thanks, and I uh, I appreciate you sticking around for the for the false start. We got it going now. Nicole, how did you end up working with kids in autism? Now, what I what I first heard you say as we got started is that you started working. You're like some big brain nuclear chemist mind mind genius, and some dude started hitting on you. Clarify that for me. I was a nuclear medicine technologist, <laughs> not as fancy as it actually sounds. Okay, but I worked in hospitals doing diagnostic metabolic imaging. Uh, cancer scans, heart scans, things of that sort. And I started a new job. I moved from Louisiana to Houston, Texas. Yeah. And the doctor there who was really good looking started hitting on me. And then like (laughs) one thing led change for me because he has a daughter on the spectrum. How old was she? Five. Okay. Five years old when we got married, mom was really not around. So I suddenly became mother mother to this child and I had no idea how to care for her. She would have tantrums and I couldn't calm her down. It was scary for me. And I had to learn. I had to learn how to do everything. So I started researching autism treatments and Houston, as you know, is the medical capital of the United States. Yes. And there were lots of treatment facilities around here. So I called and called and place after place, they told me, there's a waiting list. There's a waiting list. There's a six month waiting list. There's a one year waiting list. And eventually one of them told me, I'm sorry, she's too old. We won't take her. Now this, that's not the first time I've heard that, that the waiting list to find out if your child is actually on spectrum is so long that by the time you get the test and get, could be, be able to get support because of the test results, your child's aged out. Absolutely. 
And as a parent, you know, it's terrifying because you have this sense of urgency. You want to get treatment for your kid. You want to help them in any way you can. I mean, I would have given my arm if that would have helped, but I couldn't find anything. And that's when my genius husband said, well, if you're down for it, let's open our own. And it was really just going to be for her. But of course, I wasn't the only mother looking for this treatment. And we got all the calls and we got all the people signing up and it grew into this monster very quickly. What actually is autism? What has taken place in either the womb or with genetic expression that a child is born with autism? So autism is a developmental disability. And to say it very simply, to oversimplify it, it would be a child is physically five years old, but mentally maybe two or three or whatever it is. And to be diagnosed with autism, you must meet three criteria because the symptoms of autism kind of overlap with some OCD things. It kind of overlaps with some ADD or HDD things, but autism, you need all three symptoms, which are depth and restrictive or repetitive patterns of behavior. Can you say the three things again? Your, your, your voice cut out again. Say the three things again. We got the last one. Deficit in social skills, deficit in communication skills and restrictive repetitive patterns of behavior. Okay. So like you said before, there's a spectrum. There's high functioning, which used to be known as Asperger's. And then there's low functioning, which means that their symptoms are very severe and deficit in social skills in a high functioning person can look like you just can't have friends. You can't make friends or you can't keep them. But in a severe child, it could be that they don't make eye contact. They don't know what body language means. They um, don't know what facial expressions mean. Some children laugh instead of cry when they get hurt. They get things kind of jumbled up. And for this communication skills, a high functioning child may be able to speak, but maybe they don't have volume control. And maybe they don't know how to wait their turn when speaking, but for a lower functioning child, that could mean maybe they can't speak at all. Right. And of course, restrictive, repetitive patterns of behavior is kind of like the plate spinning you mentioned before, where a severe child would do a repetitive pattern, like flapping their hands, spinning a plate, um, being fixated on a certain toy, lining them up. But a high functioning child maybe just gets really obsessed with one subject at a time. Like my husband, who I've self have diagnosed with autism, he's very (laughs) obsessed with cars and he's on it. And he's always talking about cars and I could be, how's the weather today? And he'll be like, it's raining. And guess what that does to my car? And it always goes back to the cars and it restricts our conversation sometimes because it always leads back to the same thing. So a question about that, is that, is that primarily a safety mechanism or is that a, is that a a comfort thing, which I guess alludes towards safety? Why is there that hyper focus on a particular item, a computer, a subject uh, of one of my best friends, his son uh, focuses on, on puppets? and and can bring everything back to puppetry um i had another one i knew uh, uh, a kid i grew up with who focused on sprinklers um what is what is that singular focus thing because it's more than just a, a something that they're fixated on or want to master like it's it all it, it's obsessive in nature i mean clinically it is 
a OCD pattern. It is compulsive. They can't help it. Their brain loves it. They like it. They're getting um, endorphins and, and all these releases when they talk about it or look at it or fixate on it. It is something they cannot really stop. And just like someone with OCD who's locking the doors and unlocking the doors and they have to do it or they just break down, this is that is a, a similar symptom. So this isn't about willingness. This is about capability. Right. Now, there's also body movements. You talked about the flapping of arms, which I've which is a, is a more common one. I also know one where rocking back and forth, like they sit on their hands and they kind of bounce against the back of the chair. What is this uh, what is this deriving from? Where is this coming from? We call that a self-stimulatory behavior. Okay. So if a quote unquote normal person like you would need to sneeze, you would feel this tickle, or maybe you can um, refer to it like an itch. You feel it and you have to scratch it. For them, their brain is wired. They're briared. Their brain is wired just a little bit differently than ours. And it may feel like an itch to them, like they have to do it. And the squeezing of the muscle or the, the flexing of that muscle alleviates that itch, so to speak. And it soothes their, it soothes their need. Their, their brain needs it. We talked to you, you talked about treatment, you know, first of all, there's the testing. And I think it's important that parents understand about the testing. But then you talked about treatment. And I, I, I think one of the curiosities that I really have about treatment is, what is it that you're actually treating? Are you trying to override the behavior? Are you trying to change the behavior? Or are you trying to get them to redirect the behavior so that it works in society? What's the what's what's the perk? What's the, the motivation of treatment? You hit the nail on the head. We're not trying to change who they are. We're not trying to force them to not flap. We're forcing, not forcing, we are helping them operate or function in society so that eventually when they're adults, they can have jobs, pay their own rent and live on their own instead of being in a group home. That's every parent's fear. What's going to happen to them when I'm not here to take care of them anymore? Right. And so if someone has this pattern of behavior where they are, um, we have one little girl who likes to spit in her hand, very compulsive, spitting in her hand. In our society, that's disgusting and nobody likes that. And she could never keep a job if she were just continuously spitting in her hand. But we can replace that behavior with hand sanitizer and maybe she'll get that same sensation and then she can function in society without being judged or losing her job or or offending someone what's amazing about this is that immediately when you talked about spitting in the hand what what came up for me was the desire to connect to her and find out what it was accomplishing was she in a way that she could tell you what it felt like because one of the things that i have noticed about working with uh, uh, children on spectrum is that they don't really have connection to how they feel about, well, anything. How do you get them to explain, connect with themselves in such a way to be able to recognize what's actually taking place for them when they have a compulsion to spit in their hand? Some can communicate and some can't. Sure. And it makes it very difficult for us. And this is why we have experts that you know, have done research studies and tried different things. And we always refer back to the research. Um, my daughter is very, very verbal, sometimes too <laughs> verbal. 
And she, when she's upset, she does hand flap. And I've asked her before, why do you do that? It looks silly. Say, because it feels good. Because it feels And good. I just remember that in her brain, it's wired differently. And the sensations she experiences is different than if I would do it. So you, you, you brought up another thing about the, the, the very, very verbal. One of the uh, things that I recognize with uh, uh, spectrum behavior and have experience with spectrum behavior, and remember as a, as a buddy of mine, and I, I have known his son since his son was born. And when I, uh, what, one time I walked up to him, I was like, how you doing? He's like, well, I'm doing fine, but my parents are fighting a lot and that's making me pretty upset. And when they were fighting, my dad says, and he just like tells me everything. There's no filter. No filter. My daughter did the same thing to me when my husband and I were dating, we would go to restaurants and the waitress would ask what would you like to drink and she would say i'd like water and this isn't my real mom it's my dad's girlfriend and she's gonna move in with us and i was totally <laughs> embarrassed <laughs> what is but that yes, it's um it's it's that appropriate they don't know how to stay on topic back up and start um, that sentence over again because your your sound cut out I, I asked what is that and you went right into it it is a deficit in communication skills. Okay. They don't know what is socially appropriate. They don't know how to stay on topic and they struggle with the comprehension of what you're trying, you know, you're just trying to up and they're just ready to tell you whatever's on the top of their head and they don't have those barriers. And everything comes out. And you, you talked earlier about them not being able to recognize social cues and, and body language, where if I was to cross my arms and point my feet towards the door, like, uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Well, oh my gosh, it's 1130. I mean, would you, it's time for this party and they'll just stay in there because they're not picking up the message. When you talk about the, the struggle with social cues, is it that they don't possess the hypervigilance or vigilance to recognize somebody's body language, or is it deeper than that? It's a little bit deeper. And, and the way that I like to explain it to newcomers is most children are born with instinct of some sort. You never have to teach a When I call your name, I need you to turn your head and look at me. You never have to do it. They just naturally, naturally do it on do their it, own. Sure. And for autistic children, they don't have that instinct. You actually have to speak to them and, and tell them and break it down step by step for them to understand it. It's not something that will come naturally to them. When you do explain something intellectually to a child on spectrum, uh, there's not always an instantaneous agreement with everything you think. I find a lot of spectrum children very, very intelligent. Is that a unique trait or is do we know that while some centers of the brains are malfunctioning, others are being fed a lot of juice and are working double time? Or is that me making crap up? No, it's very common that children will be, I mean, my daughter can do math in her head like Rain Man. It's ridiculous. But if I put a chocolate donut in front of her and I say, don't eat it, she's 15 years old, but literally could not help herself from pulling that donut. Wow. 
the immaturity, the, the functioning part of brain that struggles is the self-control, the impulse control. And she can talk politics all day long. She can memorize the names of all the congressmen that I have no idea who they are and what they do and all the scandals they've been involved <laughs> with. But she can't tell you why it's her fault that she failed that test because she didn't study or didn't turn in homework or well, something simple. And will she likely blame someone else, blame the teacher, blame you, blame dad, blame the weather when, when she does something wrong or, uh, and is that have to do with not being able to see or track their own behavior? I think that's her just being a normal teenager. <laughs> I don't think the being 15. <laughs> I don't think the blaming has to do with the autism. Uh, kids with autism are normally very, very literal and they are very logical and things that they struggle with are imagination and pretending. And this is what we love to do with the very little kids is play pretend we, they need to be taught how to play pretend. And it's funny. Um, if I would tell you, Aaron, go sit in that black chair, spin around twice, stand up, pick up the pin and put it down. You would be, as I'm speaking, imagining yourself right. doing, and that's how you remember. But for a child who does not have the ability to pretend, they're literally memorizing your words, and it becomes so many steps that it's impossible to do. And so some people think, oh, this child doesn't understand speech, and that's not the case. They just don't know what you're talking about, because if you're rambling on, they lose sight of what you're even saying because they can't imagine things in their head. Nicole, what what is confusing to me about this is that here we have someone like your daughter and certainly a lot of the kids on Spectrum that we've worked with at Fire Mountain is that the, that high level of brilliance, the intellect that they possess, the ability to do math, memorize scientific facts, these types of things. Being able to do math in your head means you have to be able to picture the numbers, like you can solve the problem in your head, showing your work on paper may or may not work. But yet on the other side, there's this experience of not being able to use your imagination. I don't understand this, the separation and, and I'm my confusion and frustration with this is only coming from the fact that it feels like this is such a specialized experience with each yeah. individual autistic child that you cannot take your skills in, in working with an autistic kid from one kid to the next? Yes and no. See, math is relying on a rules that never, ever change. Right. Two plus two is four. One always. plus one is always two. Always. But when you're talking about social skills, if I say you're going to go and meet this man for the first time and say hello on his podcast, there are an unlimited number of things that can happen and they become overwhelmed and shut down because there's no way that they know what's going to happen and it makes them very anxious. And there, I mean, this goes to anything social, I mean, eye contact, dating, especially, have you seen Love on the Spectrum? <laughs> it's nope. an amazing show. Anything could happen and you can't expect it. And so things like science and math, they're very good at because it's constant. There was a video that was posted on YouTube a while back called Asperger's High. And it, it 
got millions of views and had very mixed responses. Some people took it very, very personally. Some people who were autistic, some people who, who have Asperger's would watch it and say it was the funniest thing they had ever seen. Have you ever seen it? Do you know the video I'm talking about? I do not know this video, but I talk often with my daughter because I will advocate for people with autism, but I do not have autism. So a lot of times when people get offended, it's not the person with autism that's offended. It's the parents who are advocating for them. And I asked my, you know, there's this huge controversy. Do you call them children with autism or do you call them autistic children? And some people are like, oh, you, you know, person first language, we are not defined by autism. You shouldn't call a child autistic. But when you ask someone with autism, what do you prefer? My daughter will say, I'm autistic. It's part of who I am. I'm not offended by that. I'm not broken. I don't need to be fixed. I'm not ashamed. Does that help when it comes time to... It's different for everyone, of course, and this is the age of sensitivity. Sure, it is. And now my, my question is, does that help when it comes time to work with kids on spectrum to actually say, here's the DSM, here's the diagnostics, here is the science behind what we'll do now, what do you think? Like, like do you share the research and logic, seeing as though these are the quote, end quote, facts that we're all working with, does that support them? I think it does. Um, a lot of kids, especially the ones who are very high functioning, they go undiagnosed for a very long time. And there'll be teenagers before some doctor goes, hey, I, I, I think you have autism and we missed it this whole time. And this child has had this feeling of being different their whole lives and not knowing why. And putting a name to it at least helps them understand themselves, know that they're not broken, know that they're not weird, that they're not crazy or psycho, especially for teenagers who have this, you know, whole super ego it going on. Um, and it helps them at least say to their friends, hey, I have autism. And, and when my daughter gets very upset and she offends her friends, she say, oh, I'm sorry, my autism was acting up. And it helps other people accept what just happened without judging her. Is she able to maintain relationships or is that, do people on spectrum need to be comfortable enough talking about it to support and maintain the relationships? She does struggle greatly to maintain relationships. Okay. To this day, she has never called anyone her best friend. She was invited to two birthday parties her entire life. Never was a boy ever interested in her. Never did anyone have a crush. It's the fact that she tantrums when she's upset, she can't hold back mean comments when they're in her head, um, that she doesn't cater to her friends' wants if she doesn't want that at the moment. They want to play this game, she wants to play another, and what they want is absolutely just out of the question. So it is very difficult to maintain relationships when you struggle with impulse control. Nicole, I have to imagine... And, and thinking about this, it, it, it makes me very uh, just sad in my heart that how many hundreds of years were people ostracized, punished, imprisoned, and put in mental health facilities that very simply were autistic? Absolutely. Schizophrenic, because they'll talk to themselves. And really, they're just scripting. They're quoting things they've heard before. It's, 
it's been a really, and it's still a struggle. It's not even completely recognized now. You know, younger doctors can recognize it a lot better than these older doctors who've been in the field and out of school forever. So a lot of kids still to this day are undiagnosed and misunderstood. But there is one thing that I, I did have to accept as a parent. I am more upset that she doesn't have friends than she is. She doesn't know what she's missing. And she doesn't crave social interaction the way that I do. My desire for her to have the fun friends and sleepovers and things that I experienced as a child is not what's plaguing her at night. And so I just have to accept that it's okay. It's okay for her. One of the big concerns about the attraction to video games, social media, uh, online, you know, YouTube, and and again, one of my best friends, his son who is now you know nineteen years old, is on YouTube every single day because that infinite universe of content is feeding the way that they think. It 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 is allows them to have an exploratory experience where being out in the world, the experience is going to be shut down because not everybody understands what's going on with him, but. Because those of us who work with mental health and development and and things like that, because we have this overarching concern about the effects of online stimuli and everything on the brain, are we worried about that with kids who are autistic or are we just saying, look, this is how their brain is going to work best. Let it go. There are other battles to fight. Or are we saying, my God, do we still have to get these kids outside and get them some vitamin D too? It has to be a little mixture of both. I mean, we have to expose them to different, um, you know, environments to generalize the skills that we're teaching them in the clinic. This is why we do field trips. But at the same time, our generation is not the same as their generation. And the workforce is not the same. Everything is going to computers. Everything. There is never not even all the schools have gone full electronic, even before COVID, it was heading in this direction. Anyway, it just kind of blasted it forward. So everything that we're going to do in the future is going to be with the screen in front of us. And it helps and it doesn't help because it helps because, um, you know, there's no social cues, there's no gestures, there's no facial expressions that they have to interpret in order to get a job done. And they work very well in that type of situation. Um, but they also need to be exposed to that so that it doesn't become completely obliterated in their life. I mean, you have to be continuously exposed to something in order to keep up that skill. So we have to continuously expose them to social interaction and and learn through that, but we can't take it away completely. And it, it would be a bad idea to do that. On Parenting Teens That Struggle, this is a free Facebook page that I have. It, it is The entire thing is just designed for support. I want to, after 20 years in the business of working with families and teenagers and children who are struggling with everything from addiction to uh, mental health issues to behavioral issues, one of the things about being on the last line of defense right at the at the end of the struggle is jails institutions and death and being on the last line of defense has worn on my soul 
I love, I love Fire Mountain. I love the company my wife and I started and how many thousands of people we helped, but I really want to get out in front of it and I don't want to be the pound of cure. I want to be the ounce of prevention and that's why I created Parenting Teens That Struggle. Look fam, it's a free group on Facebook that is just designed to bring you to a place where other parents who are dealing with the same type of crap that you are dealing with, with your kids making risky choices, are asking their questions, are giving each other support. I'm posting this podcast, other videos I can, other experts are showing up onto this page and it's free. The resources are out there and I want you to start taking advantage. So you're on Facebook. I know you are parents. I mean, maybe a couple of you aren't and it's okay, but those of you who are, and if you listen to this show, go to parenting teens that struggle. It's a private group. Answer the two questions. I'll let you in. You can reach out to me personally there. You can reach out to other parents. This is where the village shows up. When we say it takes a village, this is it. This is where the village shows up and helps each other out. No judgment, no BS. What's worked, what hasn't worked. This is where the parents go who are dealing with the same types of things in their family that you're dealing with in yours. Parenting Teens That Struggle on Facebook. I'll see you there. When we're working with kids on Spectrum, and I, and I want to ask about Asperger's in a minute. I want to, I want to, I want to ask about what happened to it. But when we're dealing with kids on spectrum, it was literally last week when I was on the phone with a professional where I was asked about my opinions about this, this child, this client that we both share. And he was like, you know, I don't want to pathologize. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, try to try to make this a clinical issue. But do you think this kid's on spectrum? And I was like, of course he's on spectrum. Like everything that this, this the kid is brilliant. He is handsome. He's unbelievably athletic and strong and told me I'm standing in the hallway talking to someone who loves the same video game I love. We're having a whole conversation about what we did last night where we were both online and oh my God, was that you? But when it comes time to say, hey, do you want to come over to my house and let's sit next to each other and play the game? The words can't get from my head to my mouth. And that's where his frustration comes in. And it looks like depression. Now, this, this may be a weird question, but Nicole, can kids on spectrum have depression and anxiety or is this just part of the autism? It is quite common okay. that children on the spectrum have comorbidity, meaning they, and it's all under the same umbrella of mental health disorders. Yeah. But I think one begets the other. When you are frustrated because your needs can't be met because you have a communicative problem, it creates that anxiety. And then eventually when people are continuously telling you that you're broken and stop doing that and why are you doing that? It's weird and kids are bullying you at school. It all leads to depression. There's a, there's a piece of spectrum behavior that I'm very curious about. And then I want to talk about Asperger's. There's a piece of, piece of spectrum behavior that fascinates me. And that is that whether the child breaks their arm or pinches their finger in a door, their reaction is the same. And it gets to be very confusing. And I, and I can only imagine unbelievably frightening and frustrating for parents um, of the child who is now in a full tilt, screaming, 
pain and it, it, it wears on your very soul as a parent to be like, my child is really hurt to only come to find out they pinched their finger. What is that just more of the disconnect with the body? Is that has to do with trying to pass the message to other people that you're in pain and you only know one way to do that because of that one time you got attention that you memorized? What is that an actual physiological thing or is that a, a mental emotional thing? I would like to say that it's a physiological thing and I'm not a scientist, but I mean, I have experienced, um, my husband asked my daughter, Hey, can I see your homework? And she had a meltdown just as if she were being beaten to death, chained to a wall. And it was a fight or flight response. It was full on adrenaline rush, panic attack. She physically was shaking. And it was because she anticipated into trouble for not having done her homework. And I think when the body reacts, fight or flight that way, um, it doesn't have to be logical. It just has to be that that impulse. Something triggers your brain to say this is not good and it flies off the handle. Okay, Asperger's, what happened to it? Why did they take that out of the DSM? Why did they remove that? Uh, so back in the 40s was when Asperger's technically came into existence. And back then we didn't know a whole lot about autism. We didn't know a whole lot about anything mental health anyway. <laughs> You're talking about the forties. We knew nothing. Exactly. Um, famous autistic people were like rain man, savants, right? Savants was a separate diagnosis, just like Asperger's was. And eventually somewhere in, in the nineties, they decided it was all the same thing. Just one was more severe than the And finally, in 2013, which is not that long ago, they said, let's get rid of savant, which is the most severe. Let's get rid of Asperger's, which is the lightest or most moderate symptom or mild symptoms. And let's put it all under one category, autism spectrum disorder. And we'll just say that it's a spectrum. There's, there's mild, there's moderate, there's severe. And so a lot of people wonder why are there so many more autistic kids than there were back then? Maybe there's not. Maybe some huh. were categorized as savants and some had um, PP, PDD or pervasive developmental disorder. I don't even remember what it was because I wasn't really into it back then. But all these different diagnoses came together and merged into one. And that, you know, made it seem like the numbers jumped. But then we know more about autism now and there's more awareness and there's more acceptance and new doctors are coming out into the workforce and they're able to recognize and diagnose these things as a disorder, not just a, your kid needs to be spanked type of thing. Um, And so it seems like more and more kids are autistic, but I think it's just the instance of diagnosis is rising. Loaded question, throwing one at at you out of left field here, putting you on the spot. Does this have anything to do with vaccinations, in your opinion, based on your research, based on working with these families? Have you noticed Zero any trends? possibility whatsoever. Really? Zero possibility. They have found genetic links. So autism is just like high cholesterol. Somewhere in your family, it got passed down to you. Now something had to trigger that gene to turn on because maybe you have it and your siblings don't. 
and maybe you ate all the right things and you jog and you exercise and you eat nothing but salad, you still have high cholesterol. You right. almost can't avoid it at this point. There's only so much nurture can do versus nature. We don't know what triggers it. But back in the day, uh, when the the one doctor decided that vaccines was affecting autism, he was actually paid to say that. And later on, he admitted it. And he is to this day rotting in jail for what he did. But parents are so vulnerable. Yeah. And we love to blame ourselves. What did I do while I was pregnant? Did I drop him? Did, what, did he not have oxygen? You know, did something, did I do something wrong? And when you find something like vaccinations, where there's a little bit of coincidence, because most kids get vaccines when they're five, right. and most kids are diagnosed around when they're five, it just happens to be um, a scapegoat, a way that they can blame something other than themselves, which they shouldn't blame themselves. Um, it is genetic, but it's, it's nothing that they did per se, at least that we know about. Uh, but now kids are being diagnosed earlier and earlier and earlier. Um, my daughter was diagnosed at 18 months old. Wow. And so this, the trend is moving younger and younger, which is fantastic because you can get earlier treatment in. Um, but it. And I've had people at the conference argue with me about that. Really? They're in Vegas. People were, were arguing with you about. Oh yeah. Autism's wow. caused by red dye number 15 or something like that. <laughs> I remember and, they were saying that about ADHD and it's like, I haven't had that since I was a kid and it was yeah. red dye number five when I was a kid, but oh, five, maybe yeah, five, yeah. I don't know. Wow. But it definitely isn't nutrition either because autism doesn't care if you are rich or you're poor. And those two people eat different things. Autism does not care if you're, if you're Europe in the Mediterranean or Japan or the United States, we all eat different foods. Um, and some are more fresh than others and some are more corn than others. And it literally makes no difference. So there's no possible way that nutrition is it either. And there are so many, um, I call them snake oil salesmen out there that are selling right. the cure quote unquote for autism with these it's kind of disturbing that parents are prey to these these people um but i mean we'll do anything to help our kids right we'll try anything of course I, I, i've been i've been mentioning one of my one of my very best friends dr travis fox and he 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 got his you know doctorate in psychology and then had his son and his son was Asperger's, and he literally like looked at his PhD and was like, well, this is worthless because it follows no rules, no rhyme. It, there's no, there's no gender. There's no demographic. There's nothing. No. Now, is this as prevalent in say Africa, Japan, and Germany as it is in America? And that's hard too, because in America we have more awareness and we're like my husband from Lebanon, um, it's shameful. And if your child has something quote unquote wrong with them, you hide them, you put them in a private facility and you call it boarding school. Right. Um, some cultures um, are very embarrassed by it and, and they'll send them away or put them up for adoption or God forbid, do something worse. So it's really hard to really compare. But the few studies that they've done 
show that it's pretty similar throughout the world when you have the same person going around and, and, and looking into it. What are, this is, this is my big final question. And, and I have a feeling it'll take a minute to, to answer. What is it that when a parent comes to you and you, you see the fatigue and the, and the worry and the stress and the frustration and the anger and the guilt, and they said, well, we just came back and my kid's on the spectrum. And so I need your help. And the kid runs off to play in your outpatient program. And then you've got the parent alone in the room. What do you tell the parent to do? What are the next steps for the parent? It's hard for a parent because you have all these expectations of, you know, you flash through their life in your head and they're going to have a job and go to college and get married and have kids of their own. And now suddenly you think that's all taken away from them. Right. And parents actually go through the five stages of grief as if they had lost a child when they get this diagnosis, because everything that you the window. What do you want? Do you want them to be a doctor? Do you want them to have a wife? Is that what's really important? Or do we want to get them to a point where they're happy and they can take care of themselves and they're proud of themselves? We want them to be happy. That's yeah. all it boils down to. Yes, being a doctor and being married and having kids of your own is what would make you happy. Yeah. But what makes them happy and what's going to give them the best life possible. And I'm not going to sit here and teach them how to read. If that's not going to help them as an adult, if it does, I will. Right. Um, but we're going to focus on what gets them to the place where they can be a fulfilled adult in society. And that's all that matters. Yeah, I heard someone say it's like it's like you you just have to reestablish the new status quo. It's like there's a there's a different level of what the good life is going to look like, but it's still a good life. And you as the adult have to set where that bar is. You, you cannot look at this child who's dealing with autism and say, well, they get to decide they don't. And, and I guess, I guess, can they ever, is this, can you take a kid who's at one level of function and increase the function? Is this a death sentence? What are we looking at here? It is absolutely possible. My daughter was diagnosed as moderate, severe, wasn't talking, was fecal smearing, would not potty train, would not make eye contact, had a series of flapping and repetitive behavior. She had autism. You may not recognize and so it is very, very, very possible. Can every child do it? No, not every child is capable of being like my daughter. But we want to get them to the best point that we can. And you do have to push them and take them out of their comfort zone and make them do things they don't like to do. Nobody likes putting their clothes away or taking baths or brushing their teeth. But it's, it's something that you can help them get some progress, even the worst of the worst. out of the window and see where it goes talk about your treatment uh program you you have an outpatient program yes so kids instead of going to school will come into our facility and we teach them everything that the schools do not schools will teach academic skills because they assume that your natural abilities will allow you to make eye contact and all these things so we teach the language skills the social skills the self-care skills 
fine motor or gross motor function, play skills, leisure skills, cognitive functioning, emotional development, all of these things that are left out of the typical American curriculum, we fill in those gaps. We help them catch up to somewhat of their same age peers as much as we can. And our goal is to transition them into the school system where they can eventually, you know, fit in with mainstream society. And then does your, do you guys work with insurance? Is it private pay only? Or are you a nonprofit? How do you guys fund the program that you run? We are, thank you, Obama. Um, the federal government mandates that all health insurance covers ABA therapy as a medically necessary treatment. No kidding. And it's amazing that all insurances cover it. Even uh, all Medicaid programs should be covering it now. Where they fell short is giving them a deadline. <laughs> wow, yeah. So in Texas right now, Medicaid, yeah, we pay for ABA, but it doesn't start until 2022. Got it. Um, so all kids can get the funding, can get some sort of, of treatment. And the reason why the government does this when they're younger, it prevents all these other treatments and mental health issues and self-care issues when they're adults. So overall, they're saving money by preventing instead of catching up later. And then how do, how, how do parents find you? Do you have a Facebook page, a website? Can they call you? Can they pound on your front door? What, how do, Nicole? All of these things. Great. Uh, our website is successonthespectrum.com. And if you're a parent like me that cannot find treatment and there's no treatment in your area and you are wanting to brave the same career path that I did, leaving everything behind and starting your own clinic, you can go to sosfranchising.com. And we will, uh, our franchising, we're the only franchise in the United, uh, entire United States. Wow. And we are teaching people who have no experience how to run ABA clinics and run them. One day we can meet the demand of the increase of kids being diagnosed, you know, is not being kept up with at all by providers. So we need to fill this gap. What is the percentage of kids right now? What are we, you said the increasing demand. What is it? Yes, um, the uh, instance of people or people being diagnosed with autism has increased 200% in the last 20 years. Incredible. And if you take all of the children that have autism that need treatment in the entire country and add them up and you add up all the providers that offer that treatment, we only meet 33% of the demand oh, currently. Well then give your contact information one more time, Nicole. You can open your own ABA clinic or autism treatment clinic by visiting sosfranchising.com and you could obtain your own treatment or for your child at successonthespectrum.com. Nicole Daher, thank you very much for your time. And which award did you win, by the way? Were you top 50 provider or top 100 visionary? Top 100 visionary. We are changing the world. We're the first franchise of our kind, and we are out to solve the problems. I love it. Nicole, congratulations on your award. And uh, thanks so much for helping the parents on Beyond Risk and Back get some support and help with their kids who are on the spectrum. I'm so honored. And thank you for having me again. Anytime. Uh, uh, great. It was good talking to you. Anytime you've got something you want to say about this subject, don't hesitate to give me a call, get you on the air. Absolutely. Thank you. Nicole Daher, what a, what a great 
resource. And can you imagine, parents, can you imagine, it's, it's one thing to find the ability to get support and get help with your family. And it's a whole nother to go on and be like, okay, I'm starting my own business. I'm going to help other families do this. I love that idea so much, but that's a, it's a, it's a big, tall order. It's a big, tall thing. And, and first things first, what Nicole said is so important. Just get a new understanding of happiness. Get a new understanding of what's going to make the kid happy. Not what's going to make you happy about the kid. I want to thank Deepin Productions for producing this podcast and getting uh, this music that I love so much as my soundtrack creating it for me. I want to thank Your Cause Consulting for making sure that this podcast is getting in front of all the parents who need it. Parents, you know the routine. Take care of yourself first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because that's how you're going to do your best work with your children. I will see you next time on Beyond Risk and Back.